So it's interesting to ask whether that's what the human brain is wired for, a civil society and fun. Who better to ask than Cambridge brain researcher Hannah Critchlow, sitting at King's College next to the pub, The Eagle, where the structure of DNA was announced. Well, the story goes that back in the day they used to go and discuss possible structure for DNA at this wonderful pub and this is one of the main places that they've reached their enlightenment imagining the beautiful double helix structure. One of the reasons I mentioned Watson Crick especially Crick I knew Watson and was not terribly impressed Crick on the other hand absolute bloody genius he started in physics then he went to DNA as you describe and then he decided to turn his attention to the brain and consciousness but above all he also talked about one of the essences of science, good science, is gossip. In other words, going down the pub and telling everybody what you've done in language that's not just accessible but fascinating. Would you agree with Crick? Gossip is important. I would agree with Crick, yeah. And I think it's been fundamental to our species' survival and evolution, actually. So I've written a book on consciousness, and I've also written a book on joined-up thinking, so the science of collective intelligence. And in that, I talk about how important it is that we interact with each other, that we do discuss ideas, that we allow ideas to hop and evolve from mind to mind. And fascinatingly, neuroscientists have started just in the last 10 years or so to be able to study not just individual minds working in isolation, but we can now start to study groups of people's minds working together. So for example, if we were to, I've got this amazing bit of kit at home, which I take into schools and I take into public libraries, for example, and I measure people's brainwaves as part of a demonstration interactive experiment during my talk. And what you can see when you measure people's brainwaves is, first of all, you kind of stick electrodes around people's scalp and um, measure the electrical oscillations that are occurring across the eight to six billion nerve cells that reside within each of our brains. And you can measure these different electrical oscillations, and scientists like to categorise things, they like to classify them, and they've broken down these electrical oscillations to different frequencies that are associated with certain aspects of our behaviours and ways of thinking. And all of that research has been absolutely fascinating, and it helps us to realise that, for example, things that we know intuitively to be true, like, for example, going out for a nice walk in nature, can help us to feel calm and to creatively problem solve. We can also see, for example, that if we meditate like a Buddhist monk, that actually helps us to access all of that disparate information that's spread across our whole connectome, across our whole brain, so that we get joined up thinking within our own brain. But more recently, researchers have been hooking up different groups of people and watching their electrical oscillations and watching how their brains mechanistically working as that group of people are working together, as they're trying to build consensus, as they're trying to learn from each other and as they're building and as they're problem solving. And what you can start to see is that those electrical oscillations actually start to become in step with each other. They become in time with each other as people work together positively. And that degree of brain synchronicity can actually predict how well that group is going to achieve problem solving, for example, or the degree that they're going to be able to learn from each other. This is all probably things that we intuitively know. We say to each other, oh, we're in sync. I feel in tune with you. And there's a physiological basis for this as well that we're finding out about. And we also know that things that you can do to help boost this brain synchronicity is looking each other in the eye directly as we are together as we are together yeah or if we were to do some exercise together 
So, for example, if we were to go for a run together or go rowing, we're in Cambridge, so why not row? singing in choirs. Exactly, or singing in choirs. So all of these things have been really deeply embedded in many different cultures across the world, chanting, singing, stomping, dancing, exercising together. All of these things help us to become in synchronicity in terms of our brainwaves so that we can start to see the world in a more similar way so that we can start to learn from each other and problem solve. And there's some theories that have been posited by researchers recently that actually we're moving towards creating this interconnected mega group, like almost a, a super brain that's being created. And in part, that's been due to some of these technologies that as a species, we've also been compelled to create. So going back to Crick and consciousness. So he was interested in consciousness as an individual consciousness, but he also saw the real benefits in us being able to sit down and share ideas with each other, allow ideas to emerge and evolve uh, and the benefit of collective wisdom and collective intelligence. Let's do a thought experiment. Mm. The opposite of what you just said. Imagine instead of going out and joining in and seeing real people in places where you can coordinate in all sorts of social ways that we are somehow used to. Most of human societies around the world are built like that. Instead, you stay in and allow yourself to depend entirely on your connections via AI, via the various devices and social media we know just so well, but too well, perhaps. And somebody on the Science Show a couple of weeks ago was talking about Lilith Landowski, that if you are more and more depending on having your brain patterns done by a machine in front of you, then, of course, like any sort of system, pathways die down. You don't use them very much anymore. And so your brain gets less adaptable and adept. Doesn't do what you just said so well. <laughs> it does when it's healthy and challenged. Yeah, absolutely. And there's nothing that really demonstrated this more clearly than the pandemic, the worldwide pandemic in 2020, and the isolation measures that various governments across the world put different countries into. And what they found, I mean, scientists are still researching this and they're still gathering the data, but this was a real mass human experiment in some terms. And it was, you know, the pandemic was undoubtedly horrific for a high number of people across the world. And it's also created a lot of data on the effects of isolation and the effects of what happens when people can't get together to allow their brains to synchronise when they are just relying on technology for interaction. And what you can see is that in various countries across the world, as people entered isolation measures, not only their physical and mental health dropped, and we've known that for a very long time, actually we need each other for physical health. So for example, it was Robin Dunbar. Magdalen College, Dunbar's numbers. Yeah, there's the Dunbar numbers, which is, you know, the magic number of 150 people is the magic number of connections, the number of people within your network that you can have related to the ratio of a particular region of the brain that's associated with how we form social bonds. But he also talked about this idea that if we're isolated, if we don't interact with enough people, then actually our physical health suffers to the degree that it's similar to smoking 20 cigarettes a day. And it's also our mental health that can be affected as well. So for example, for my PhD, I was looking at 
what happened to rodents' brain when they're taken away as young pups, away from their parents, but also away from any of their siblings or any playmates, and what happened when they were reared in isolation. And you can see a diminishing, a severing of connectivity within the brain, and you can see profound effects of that isolation on the brain, and then you can start to see behavioural effects as well. But what we saw with humans was that physical health, mental health diminished during the isolation measures, but also IQ scores decreased, and that those measures did return generally back to the levels originally as those individuals in the countries went out of isolation measures and they were allowed to interact again. But that return actually was slower for those individuals that were shielding due to a prior health condition. Well, it's very interesting. Uh, By the way, Robin Dunbar's book, Gossip, Grooming and the Origins of Language, really remarkable. When we come out of trees, where we've been grooming each other as great apes, because if we groomed on the ground, well, some great big thing with tusks would probably gobble us up. And so we had gossip, in other words, talking instead. So we're built, we're evolved to be with each other and talking. And the point is that if you diminish that, as you describe, may suffer as an individual and indeed a community. So what would you like to see in your greatest dreams? Now that we're sort of covered in gadgetry and bloody devices, pouring data all over us, what would you like to see happen in 10, 20 years to individuals and to communities if all goes well? I think there's some real positives to be taken from these new technologies. So, for example, I can now communicate with the friends that I made in Australia. So I got stuck in Australia during the pandemic as a result of aviation shutdowns and restrictions and made some fantastic friends there and there. And I'm now able to continue to interact with them. And I know that I've I've been back to Australia once since the pandemic to visit them and I know that I'll go again. And so these transportation and these communications devices have really assisted with that. So I don't think it's all negative. What about young people? What if they're trained, perhaps, to use these devices more selectively, thinking about what you just said? Well, yeah, that's a really important point. So we've got to remember that our brains have a huge amount of plasticity and flexibility, particularly in the younger brain. So we have these genes that we've each been given from our mum and dad that helps to instruct how our neural circuitry with 86 billion nerve cells are going to connect up with something like 86 trillion connections that's going to form really the cartography, the map, which will instruct how information is processed within our mind to create our sense of reality, our perception of the world and instruct us how to interact with the world. So there's that, that genetic basis for our brain, but there's also our experiences and particularly our early year experiences that help to sculpt that map within our mind that creates our decision making and our reality. And so as we go through life and we experience different things, as we learn different things, you can see new connections forming within the mind, becoming consolidated into stable connections as it becomes reinforced and becomes a habit in our way of thinking. So what's really important is that during the early years of our brain's development, there's a huge amount of this flexibility. And during the adolescent period, there's still a huge amount of flexibility, but there's also pruning, something called pruning going on. So Sarah Jane Blakemore, she's a professor of neuroscience science here at Cambridge University and she's pivotal in uncovering this incredible period of neurodevelopment of the adolescent brain. That's really where the identity is starting to be sculpted within that brain. So all of those experiences and the exposures during those early years and during those teenage years can really affect how that person as an adult is going to be able to interact with others, affect the wisdom and the knowledge that they've accrued and they're going to continue to accrue throughout their life. So what I'm saying is that yes, 
Being able to use technology has its advantages in much the same way as our ability to look each other in the eye can have advantages or our ability to sing or to create artwork or to dance together or to exercise together. All of these things can be very important for our evolution as a species. But it's all got to be done in balance. When you talk to young people and you tell them these things, do they look at you blankly or do they agree? Oh, they absolutely agree. It's a joy. So I'm involved in this incredible project called GCSE Science Live. So I go and talk to GCSE and also A-level students across the UK at these amazing venues with Lord Robert Winston and also Alice Roberts, the anthropologist. On television all the time. Yeah, yeah, she's wonderful. And Jim Al-Khalili as well, the physicist, also gives these talks. Written books on Islamic science. Yes, and physics, yes. So the students have a massive appetite for science. They're really interested in it and they love watching brainwaves and seeing how our brains can actually produce our behaviour. They've got so many questions afterwards. And when I just emphasise to them that this incredible process is occurring in their brains, that flexibility, that dynamism is going to continue all the way until they're probably around 25 years old, at which point their brain becomes slightly less flexible, slightly less creative, slightly less fizzing with ideas. They get really excited about that. And I don't think they really need persuading that actually it's a good idea to fill their brains with lots of experiences, lots of different ways of looking at the world, rather than just sitting and playing a video game or sitting on social media constantly. The exuberant brain researcher Hannah Critchlow in Cambridge. Her books are a delight.